0: There's an amazing story. In the 1950s, particularly the last half of it, the U.S. was falling behind the Soviet Union in the Cold War. All of the pro-American sentiment that had come after World War II was beginning to fade around the world, and the Soviet Union was was seemingly outpacing the United States in technology, uh, particularly in weapons. Uh, Couldn't get NASA off the ground, but every night you could watch Sputnik fly overhead. It was a tense time. And the Cold War was so much about these two mega powers going around the world and trying to convince different countries to join their coalition, to join uh, the plan to give places of access, economic opportunity and partnerships to grow. And so as the U.S. began to have these struggles, it became very tense and ambassadors began to fail in their attempt to get nations to join them. In 1957, Greece was very close to joining the Iron Curtain to go behind it and there was a, a growing anti-American sentiment, there was a growing uh, communist movement, and during that time, Dizzy Gillespie went there on a cultural exchange and did a concert that was apparently so great that it ended the anti-American sentiment. The Soviets lost their momentum there, and Greece never joined the Soviet Union's alliance and forged an alliance with NATO. So the State Department had this idea, well, we don't, we don't know how it works, but apparently it does, So they began sending America's top jazz artists all over the world. And it was incredibly successful. Places that that were so close to joining the other side, Brazil and all these other major nations that were very important and strategic uh, suddenly changed their mind. And so the question has long been, why were the jazz ambassadors so effective? Where professional ambassadors weren't, why were the jazz ambassadors so effective? And at the time, the theory was it was the razzle-dazzle of American celebrities. That the Soviet Union just didn't have Dizzy Gillespie, and they didn't have uh, Louis Armstrong. But as time has gone on, we realize that that's an awfully patronizing way of looking at the rest of the world. Especially when we see that celebrity endorsements actually don't carry much political clout. As particularly they find celebrities are incredibly unsuccessful in places that are really low economics because they offend people with just their presence there. And so what they, the, the theory is now, and, the, and what, when they interview people, why was it impactful? It was because uh, it succeeded because it, it showed a culture. It wasn't a technological development. It wasn't a military develop, development. It was a cultural development. And as, as people are trying to decide what civilization they're going to go to, if you ask anybody, well, what do you want, capitalism or communism? They don't care. But when you, when you show uh, a culture that's excited, and, and jazz is the great American art form, it could have only happened here. If the history books closed today, we would be known for a few technological advancements, having an impact on spreading democracy around the world and ending monarchies and creating jazz. Everything that we have made, rock and roll, everything that came after hip-hop, it all comes from jazz, and jazz had to happen here. It had to happen in a place where you had uh, the the free-form music of Africa mixed with the philharmonic sound of the West. It had to be influenced by blues that was developed by slaves in the South. It had to have all of these elements to become what it was. And this great art form went around the world, and people decided they would rather see their own society be one of rich culture and a place of excitement than to join the guys with the bigger rockets. It showed that rich cultural development. The goodness and the gentleness of our culture shined in that time, and it changed people's minds around the world. It was very different. It wasn't about power. It wasn't about nuclear weapons. It wasn't about bases. It wasn't even about the economy, which was at that time, most of the money in the world was in one country, and it was this one. It was about the goodness of a place and what it could develop that made the difference. And I would say this, representing the U.S. is is very important. It's important to represent well, but it's far more important to represent the kingdom of God well. God has always had his, his... People to represent him, a temple that people could come to to experience him, to represent God in this world. Every day for those of us that are now the living temple of God is a cultural exchange moment where we can absorb a culture from somewhere else and infuse it to where we're at. To let the gentleness of that show, the richness of it show to a world that wants a thing of culture, a thing of future and hope. Of livelihood, because that's what I find so remarkable about the jazz ambassadors is all they really did is go around and showed a particular livability outside the iron curtain, and it changed world history. But the temple has to be accurate, and has to look the way it was supposed to be. And we're meant to be those who spread the kingdom, and like the jazz ambassadors, we're called to do so with very odd. And uncommon tactics. I want to read something from uh, uh, second, or First Peter. We're going to be in, in uh, chapter 2. He says, starting in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans and chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone, the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes, excuse me, the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them to fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also uh, what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of this darkness and into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage is interesting for a few reasons. One is that the the growing picture that Peter begins to paint in our minds of dead stones that get stacked on a living stone and made into a living structure. That when we come together, the corporate you, which is used there, not you individually, but you as as all of us together, each living stone built in to a temple that hosts God's presence. And this is, I I think, a particularly bold theology to say at this moment, because now we can have maybe a sense of, well, we don't have to feel bad that the temple was destroyed in 77 AD and that it was never rebuilt. We don't have to feel bad or feel like God lost because the Dome of the Rock is up there. We know that his presence is out here among all of us and that his temple is living and growing, but this wasn't said when the temple was destroyed. It would have been rather offensive to put on the theology And to teach that God's temple had moved beyond being just on one hill in one place. The temple is still standing. And the theology is not that God forsakes the temple, but that he ventures outward. When Christ says that uh, all is finished and he did what he was called to do, it says the veil of the Holy of Holies tore open. God's presence spills out and the temple began to build some additions more people being brought in, more bricks being built into it until it wasn't a dead temple, but a living one filled with living people who speak and live their lives. And in them, the presence is hosted that exchanges that culture of heaven with the world, pouring into Jerusalem first and into the rest of the world as it grows. And the grander temple is built around the world. The one that started that day still grows today as more living stones are found and cleaned and re quarried knocking the edges off, made back into the way they were intended to be and built into something greater. The temple was always meant to be a revelation of God. Today's temple, us, the church, you, is meant to be a reflection of God. And for it to work, it must look like what it was modeled after. You will not recognize it. We're all gonna laugh. Just try not to laugh so hard that you forget everything I'm saying, but take a look here. Uh, (laughs) They're going for what was on the left. And we know, who is that on the left? That's Elmo. Who's on the right? I have no idea. It looks like uh, Chucky after he's caught on fire and melted. That's horrifying. Uh, And what's sad is that as you look at that, you know, someone tried. And I would really make fun of it harder if I'm just, I'm convinced that was a child. I mean, there's no way. I suppose a grown adult could do bad. But if you look at this, one of them was made to look like Elmo. The other one was also made to look like Elmo. One of those looking at it, you immediately know who it is. You know what show it's referencing. Uh, You know what his voice sounds like. I don't even want to hear the voice of the one on the right. Uh, the, the temple had to be built specifically for a purpose because that tabernacle, that temple in the Old Testament needed to reflect something about God's eternal nature. Everything in the tabernacle is specifically meant to represent something. It's very rich. You could spend forever reading through that and going through each little detail and we don't have time for it today, but we're gonna go through one just to give you an idea. So this is how it works. Next picture. Not as funny, I'm sorry. Very serious. The bronze laver, uh, if you've got an NIV, they call it the, the bronze basin, which I'll be calling it for the rest of this brief little talk. It was the last object that a priest would pass by before they entered the, the tabernacle temple, the same structures used when they built the permanent temple in Jerusalem. And it has paragraphs about how to build it. They don't say build a basin and, and put it there. There are so many details about that thing. The priests were supposed to wash in it every time before they enter the temple. And they, whether they had just finished slaughtering something on that slaughter table next to the brazen altar, and they're bloody, or if they're clean and they're just washing it to wash themselves ceremoniously, they had to wash when they would go in there. It has several details about it. It had an upper and, and lower layer. Um, Or it had upper layer and lower bowls where they would wash both their hands and their feet. And it says, it goes on and on about how polished it needs to be. Like, well, these seem like a lot of weird details. You could flip right by it. Do we realize that there were things about this temple, every detail, including that brazen uh, uh, basin that mattered? It's come to very clearly represent the covenant we have with Christ that the last thing we do before we're in God's presence after all that we've seen and experienced is to receive cleansing. To be washed and washed not just in our hands or in our feet from where we were going. Sometimes we, we're, we're too myopic about salvation, that it's about, it's about just cleansing sin, but it also prepares, like, uh, like the prophets who had to be purified for the work of God. You wash hands and feet, Christ washes both so that you can be cleansed of the past and sanctified for the future. It's meant to be polished and so clear because when a priest would come to wash in that thing, it was polished like a mirror and they could see the reflection. Because as Christ purifies you, if you just think it a ceremony and you don't connect with the need to reflect, to see self, to feel a need to adjust, maybe you wipe that goat's blood off your face or whatever it is you're doing, you don't get it. There are people who, who have this attitude as if, well, God forgave me, so you must also. And they can, and I hear stories from families who had maybe a religious father who was, who was very religious, had really strong goals, but he did not look or sound like Jesus at all. He was brutal, and he had this idea of like he's just forgiven, you need to let it go. And to not connect with conviction, that as Christ is purifying you, you need to see and connect and be different. You will not reflect Christ to your kids. You won't reflect that to anyone. And there's these deep things that we can find out about sanctification that this society would experience through Christ thousands of years later that was being prophesied through the very objects that the tabernacle was built out of. Everything about this tabernacle specific down to the thread that's used in the drapes. Everything's called out. It would have been exhausting to build this thing. I remember I took a CAD program where you draw pictures to tell people stuff, and they said, before they did this, you guys wouldn't believe this. They used to have to write descriptions of the buildings that they would make. I'm like, I study theology, I know. I've read about 10 descriptions of the temple, and I still can't figure it out. I still Google it to look at stuff like that. I'm like, oh, they were stretched over as the rain would fall off. I didn't think about that, because you just... The descriptions go on and on and on and on, and everything's called out. Everything is specific, the colors, the threads, the placement, the dimensions... Why was the temple needed to be so specific? Because it said something. And when you saw it and you experienced it, you're supposed to get something that was beyond just those little details. No detail could be ignored. So, also, no detail can be ignored for the way God asks His living temple to be, to live the little things that he asks us to do, we're gonna have, this This generation of culture has its discussions as to why does the Bible ask us to have this lifestyle and these things? Why does it condemn or condone? Why does it say these things? We don't get it. And one of the greatest things they'll ever do is decide to follow it even if they don't get it yet. And the next generation, they'll have different questions. The one before us will have different questions. There are times that we'll read the dimensions and we see how I'm supposed to live my life, the things I'm supposed to do, Turn the other cheek when someone hits one, face, one side of my face. There are things that are perplexing. And the reason that we follow them is because every detail about a temple needs to reflect its God. Every detail about your life, your lifestyle, the way you interact with people should reflect God. No detail could be ignored then and it can't be ignored now. Or we'll just be a bunch of goopy almost. The details reflect his nature. So there is a call to simply obey, whether it's perplexing or not. Because the call to holiness, it has, it has two specific things. And we hear that calling at the beginning of this encouragement for, to be a living temple, don't we? Rid yourselves of malice. Rid yourself of this. Get rid of this. Crave pure spiritual milk. Simplify. Purify your lives. To do so has two things. One is that God loves his people. He loves you. He does not like what hurts you. He doesn't like what hurts his people. He doesn't like what destroys and breaks them down. And so he swats away the things that hurt us. Sometimes we want something that's going to hurt us really bad, and he says no. I, uh, I have nephews and nieces. They all, everybody seems to have a pellet stove these days, and we don't. We have, we have baseboard heaters, and it's a shock now that I think about it that our kids haven't been burned on it. But you can try all you want to tell them not to touch the bright, glowy thing, and all my nephews and nieces have done it. At my parents' house, there's a gas fireplace, and it gets turned on, and that that glass gets really hot, tempered glass, and we couldn't stop Victoria from touching. Every time we did, we're not tough enough to do the thing of like, touch it, you'll find out. So when she touched it, I wasn't in the room to save her. And uh, she learned at that moment why I had such weird standards about the pretty glowy light. God protects us in a similar way. But there's also a second reason that I think we can forget that we need to be an accurate representation of God to this world. A temple built precisely to plan, to pursue a holy life for us and for others. When I think about people I grew up with, people my age that have walked away from faith, they do not believe anymore. What I find remarkable is that none of them were scientifically or philosophically persuaded away from Christianity. They didn't attend something and go, oh man, I just feel like I can't believe in the creation story of Genesis or I don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead. I don't get how that works. None of them were. They were all, all of them walked away because of, they saw unchanged and legalistic lives in Elmo cake Christians. And when they saw their lives and they saw the way they were, whether it was family, whether it was friends, whatever it was, it made them think this cannot be real because I'm seeing what they're reflecting, and that is not a living God. They didn't, these these M.L. Cake Christians, as we could call them, they didn't have God's compassion. They showed pettiness. They didn't show righteousness. They had a way of looking away when the matter suited them best, having very different standards for their people than they do the opponent's people. Because in the end, the only testimony that convinces anyone is a changed life. When a person's really, really different, when something changes, when God convicts and moves us, when, when we see into that reflective basin, and not only are we ceremonially and eternally clean, but we are changed ourselves because we've reflected in God's redemption, that is what convinces an unbelieving world. And the missing aspect of it, if it's not there, is what creates a doubting second generation of Christians who find themselves having a hard time believing these things could be real when people live lives that are so fake. This is why Peter tells us, if you're going to be at the temple of God, cast off your vices because the world watches you in cultural exchange every single day, and they want to know where you come from. Is this real? Now, we do have some very good news is that the same presence that filled the tabernacle in glory, the same temple, the presence that filled the temple with glory, the same presence that rose Christ from the dead, dwells in his temple today, dwells in you today. And that is the one that builds us and convicts us and says, what belongs or doesn't belong in this life that is meant to reflect God? I love, uh, I, and I'm, I, miss, I miss him now because he always had wisdom to give, but Jerry Cook was, he wasn't the founding pastor, but he still might as well have been because it became very different after him. And he once spoke in one of our men's retreats. He said something I'll never forget. He said, no, wait, he, this is actually something he read in his book. I've, I've read a lot of Jerry. It's like Jerry and C.S. Lewis. They're like, the two guys I've read a lot of. But Jerry said, uh, healthy sheep grow wool, that, that you never see a sheep straining, trying to push its wool out and, and reading books about it and trying to figure out what's it going to do to make the wool grow thick and full, what vitamins and minerals does it need to find. But if a sheep is just simply healthy, the wool is produced. And that if a sheep wants to be healthy, a domesticated creature who's completely ridiculous in caring for itself, it must remain with the shepherd. A healthy sheep is the one that's with the shepherd that picks off the ticks, that says, this glen is not green anymore, let's move on to the next one. The one that, that when the wool gets long enough, the shepherd's the one that shears it off so that fresh can grow. Healthy sheep grow wool, and healthy sheep are with the shepherd. I want to tell you the best thing you can do for a lost and dying world, the best thing you can do with your, for your family If you've got kids and you're wondering, how do I hand a faith on to them? The best thing you can do is to dwell with God, to be with him, to absorb that culture, to think like God, to remain close to that shepherd. Because if you're wanting to produce the wool of your life, the good things, remain close to him and he will guide you. It is that presence that will help convict us to rid ourselves of malice and of of the difficult things that arise in our lives. I was inspired by what Aaron said today about just thinking about reimagining our lives as different rooms we can invite God into, to be part of. And the way that that impacts us, my favorite moment of communion was actually, uh, Ryan, he forgot his cup, had to go get it, came back. And then he had his cup after having to run off and get it. He saw someone didn't have a cup. He gave that to them and then ran and got another one. Like he just, at some point hanging out with God, Brian must've got the idea, you know, people matter more than ceremony. They're more sacred than ceremony. So it doesn't matter that I'm going to leave the podium again. I'm going to make sure that everybody in here has a cup and he can have mine. We reflect God's nature when we spend time with him. The best thing you can do for your family, for this dying world, for the people at your job you want to reflect Christ with, is go get the reflection. Go spend time with Christ. Go spend time with God. Give God time. Invite him into more of your life. The mundane, the small things, the spiritual moments and all of it, that his desire of dwelling with us, that the word became flesh and dwelt with us, that at the end the Lord Jesus Christ dwells with his people forever, that his desire would be fulfilled, God's desire be fulfilled, that he would dwell with you. And, we have, and then we reflect that culture in a cultural exchange to this world. I went on a study retreat. I try to go every season and to, to indict myself now. Last time I went on a study retreat, we were in interim, and Foursquare did not tell me yet if I was going to be appointed pastor. It's been a while. I should probably go again. Um, but a study retreat for me, it's about getting away, getting some quiet and being with the Lord and, and just being encouraged or recharging and just, it's, it's so critical if you're going to serve God, you never treat him like a boss, that he's, uh, he's still God. And so I went on this retreat and it, I'll tell you, in turn, from my perspective, it was weird because I knew from week one after speaking with Foursquare that I was a candidate and I couldn't tell any of you. <laughs> Uh, they, and it was good advice, because had I told people in the church, and, you, and we knew that one of our own was a candidate, and then Forrest grade came back and said, Sam, we think you're a great guy, but you're just not it. They didn't want to cause trouble in Sandy, so I couldn't tell. People were even asking me, and I was like, I don't know what's going on. I'm sorry, I lied to you. <laughs> uh, in all honesty, I didn't know. I just knew one more thing than you did, that I was being uh, interviewed with the district. And it was a, a year of this, six months in, I went on the study retreat, and I was like, just... All the quiet, not knowing. It took a long time. It's, Foursquare likes to have long pauses with interim. And so other people are saying, why is it taking so long? Why aren't they just, you know, are, they must not want you there, I'm guessing. And they're looking for other people. Like it was, some of the conversations were uncomfortable. And so I went on this study retreat expecting to encounter God in that moment because it was tough. I was in charge of ministry at the time, meaning that I was making sure that needs were getting met and that we had speakers on Sundays, and it was a very busy time simultaneously being the youth pastor. So I went on this retreat fully expecting that God was going to speak and maybe not tell me what's going to happen, but give me like a, like, here's the sword, son, now go and remember. In the hard times, like I was going to get something. So I go on this retreat with high expectations, I got to, I I went to Astoria, I get to the hotel, I check in, I'm not feeling very good. I happen to have a thermometer because it was during the pandemic and I took it, I had a temperature. So I'm like, great, now I got a temperature. So I couldn't go out in good conscience. I'm like, I can't go out with a fever, like in a pandemic, that's not okay. So I, I had to stay in my hotel, get takeout, I'm just laying there, nothing. I mean spiritually it was crickets and I'm like, what is going on? So I'm laying there, I'm like, I'm sick, I'm drinking theraflu tea. And I'm just, just waiting for like this thing where God's like, this is what it was all about. And I begin to think to myself, oh, I did I wasn't supposed to come. I wasn't supposed to. Like, how many messages need to thump me on the head that I'm not supposed to be in Astoria right now? I told myself I needed a spiritual treat, but maybe I was just emotionally overwhelmed and I putered out way too early. And there was this interesting thing before I went, all of interim comforting me in the hard time was forged in fire on the History Channel. It's a, it's a weapon forging competition. Uh, and I was just, just sitting there and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I was getting bored, honestly. I'm waiting on God, getting bored. And, you know, the Lord speaks to us. He speaks to us in our heart and our emotions and our mind. And I felt the Lord speak inside of me and say, because uh, I'm praying the whole time, nothing. I'm like, God, why am I here? What's going on? And I finally heard the Lord say, I finally got, I got, I got some of your time. Let's watch Forged in Fire. And I watched like five episodes of Forged in Fire in the presence of God. And it was weird. And I came home and like, how do I tell Elena? Like, oh, by the way, all that sacrifice he put in to watch the kids while I'm gone. I got basically nothing, but the Lord just wanted to spend time with me. But I found that it was actually very formative. Because that's something I'm really going to need to remember as a pastor, that that I'm not God's employee, and I'm not his errand person or his champion he selected, that I'm still just his, his me, his Sam, and that it's okay to just be in God's presence. And, I might, and you might think to yourself, well, that was the point of the retreat was to teach me that lesson. But but I was there on that retreat, and I very much get the sense that that really was God wanting to just simply spend time. You know, I ask, where, where does Peter get this theology? Where does he get this idea that dwelling with God would change us? I think about one of the last stories we have of him in the gospel is, After he's betrayed Jesus, Jesus shows up, and before he gets confronted by God, Jesus has grabbed some fish, and he grills them up breakfast, and they have a full breakfast together before they even start talking about anything. He just dwells with him. And it reminds me that Peter probably spent a lot of time just being with Jesus, just going fishing, having breakfast, spending time together, dwelling with him that implanted things in him to where it wasn't just about God trying to command and direct and Christ trying to make him the perfect evangelist. But the, God just simply wanted to spend time with Peter. That changed Peter. And that cultural difference people experienced Peter changed them. That as we feel that God wants to simply be with us, we learn that it's okay to simply be with other people. To not be utilitarian in everything. A simple moment of peace and rest. One of the last things I have to say about this series before we close, is: I think about where we started, or at least with second week, about how the, the, the glory of God rested on the tabernacle and the people didn't move. They wouldn't break up camp and they wouldn't go anywhere until the cloud lifted. And then as soon as it lifted, they went with it. And this is remarkable because this is a nomadic people. We know nomadic people. We know what they do. They leave where the green is, where the water's flowing, where the seasons are better. They're, uh, they're subject to the whims of this world, and it's why they won't settle roots down and live anywhere. They're moving for survival. And yet God's people are not subject to the, the whims of this world. They wait with God and they don't go until He leaves. Sometimes in life, we want to spend time with God and get the thing that we need for the the adventure ahead, the new tool, the new weapon, the new thing that we feel that we need, that we just want to get it and go. And we must experience to remain there until the cloud gets up and lifts because you need to know something about God. One of his intentions is just to simply be with you. And there's only one place you can learn a culture and it's by living there. Only one place you can absorb that. My grandmother goes on vacation, and she comes back with the exact accent of where she left. It's the weirdest thing. My uncle picked her up. She was in the UK. She came back, sounded like Mary Poppins. <laughs> she, she goes to, uh, she goes to uh, despite the fact that she's uh, uh, as white as snow, she goes to a black church. You should really talk to my grandma after service. It's a, it's a hoot. <laughs> she absorbs the, that from where she goes, because where you live, you absorb that culture. You absorb it. We don't just go to God to get the thing we need next. We need to live daily the little things. Watch Forged in Fire with God. Listen to music with the Lord. Spend time in silence where He doesn't speak. Spend time with Him when He is speaking. Experience Him convicting you in hard moments who God is across a full spectrum of life. And that time, when you steep in that culture, you'll shine in a full spectrum of life. Instruction and dwelling are different words. Yes, God instructs, but he also just dwells. So dwell with him, be with him, and genuinely love others for the sake that he just simply and genuinely loves us. Not utilitarian, not for what he gets out of us, but that we are his simply because we're his. We absorb that culture and we exchange that culture with the world to dwell pure and simple with God, that we could dwell pure and simple in the world around us. That maybe we do want to let our coworkers know about the gospel at work and all those things, but to not discredit that before we share our faith or our testimony, all those little moments we share with them, that that's also critical. And we know they're critical because God treated them critical with us, the times he simply spent with us. Because if we steep with God long enough, if we remain with the shepherd long enough, we'll grow wool. If we stay with him close enough, we absorb his culture. And then that culture and that goodness will shine. And in that moment, an unbelieving world will see something that's truly unbelievable. You changed you different, you more patient, you more compassionate, you seeing everybody doing things like, I, I doubt Ryan's favorite thing. He even said today he didn't really feel necessarily super excited about being up. He was a little bit nervous that he stayed up here and went and got another cup for somebody else and remained in it because he experienced something about God's valuing of other people. All the little things matter. So have the little moments with God. Let's pray. Lord, today, I pray that you would help us reimagine the gospel, that if we've simply put it in terms of salvation, that we would remember its salvation unto dwelling, that you have wanted to dwell. You cleansed us so we could dwell with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us dwell with you in the big moments, the little moments, the silly ones, and that with that daily living, real conviction, real spending time in your presence, in laughter and in tears and silence, in the mundane and the important, that we would absorb who you are and that our cultural exchange with the world would introduce it to a kingdom that is far greater than anything we could have dreamed of, one that is so good that we're convinced of it by our experience of its goodness. Help us to dwell with you. The best thing we could do for a dying world, Lord, is to dwell with you. Bless this time ahead today. Whether we've got noise or silence ahead of us, you go with us into it. Help us dwell with you in every moment, in every place, and change our hearts forever. In your name we pray, amen.